Hey, Brian here. There will be spoilers for Disco Elysium in this one. I'll chime in again before we get into endgame spoilers, but everything is on the table for this podcast. Also, Clint's audio is a little off compared to the norm, so apologies for that. Uh, We'll have everything back to normal next month. Thanks, and hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skirsha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Disco Elysium. Developed and published by Studio Zaum, it was released for Microsoft Windows in October of 2019. And after taking first place in four different categories at the 2019 Game Awards and winning a whole host of other critical distinctions from various outlets, we decided we had to see for ourselves what made this game special. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing was I was really intrigued. So we had a game that was topping the Steam charts for weeks, and I'd never even heard of it before it released, which is weird. I think that's only happened one other time this year, and that would have been with Remnant. But this time, like, everybody's talking, like, game of the year, and I'm like, I haven't even heard that this exists yet, so what the heck is it? So I had to pick it up, and I think I ended up playing through the entire thing in three days, which, given the length of the game, is insane. I, like, couldn't put it down, and then I wanted you guys to play it. (laughs) it was a good choice good call this game has been fantastic i've quite enjoyed it yeah i was more than happy to uh to go along with you on that one as well i had uh heard a little bit about this game before its launch but uh not nearly enough to warrant the hype that it got after release and it paid off i loved it i loved every minute well we just spoiled the reviews guys (laughs) (laughs) you can skip to the end it was good yep thumbs up from all uh the end and next month no uh, <laughs> so yeah the, another interesting thing that caught my attention when this game first came out was the fact that it is an estonian developed game uh studio zaum as a, a team out of estonia they you know in addition to only being a, an indie studio of about 20 people uh at least eight of those were writers so this sort of immediately tells you what kind of game this is going to be. It's going to be text-heavy, CRPG, uh, a lot of dialogue, a lot of um, written choices and description. Yeah, I know a lot of those games are really popular, but for some reason they don't usually land very well with me. Just not that I don't like reading, but it's almost like too much reading um, for some of those games. But this, uh, I felt like, was intriguing enough and had a good enough story that it held it the whole time. The writing for this game was top-notch, absolutely. This is probably one of the funniest games I've played in years, just some of the absurd situations and humor that they would lay on you. Uh, Top-notch writing. Not only is it funny, but it, it can be equally tragic. Like, this game ricochets back and forth between comedy and tragedy so quickly that you hardly even, you know, know what to feel at any given moment. It's, you know, deeply affecting as well as, you know, deeply absurd. Yeah, it's extreme. You go from uh, completely, well, from hating your yourself as, as the main character to feeling bad for him to to almost yeah, you, you like feel sorry for him. But on the other hand, you're like, you did this to yourself. You worthless fuck. Like you, you are the world's biggest fuck up in this game. So, just a high level elevator pitch for this game is that it's a kind of police detective story told in the isometric. CRPG style, similar to Planescape or Baldur's Gate. Um, You wake up in a hotel room, 
you don't have any pants on, your tie is stuck to the ceiling fan, one of your shoes has been thrown out the window, you've got to collect all that stuff and then figure out this murder that you've been sent here to solve. Yeah, and you don't even know your name. You, you can't remember who you are, what you've done, and you go downstairs and everyone just hates you and you're trying to figure out, oh god, what did I do last night? Because you have <laughs> yeah. no clue. Yeah, your um, mention of Baldur's Gate and Planescape Torment as well is definitely a strong influence here. Uh, the writer, uh, Robert Kurvitz, who's actually also a novelist, uh, even admitted as much that one of the biggest favors that ever was done for him in his life is that um, uh, Chris Avalone did Planescape Torment and uh, the Estonian punk bands were introduced to him. So he is very much influenced by Estonian punk and Chris Avalone. So I think you can pretty much see what we're spelling out in terms of the the tone of this game from... Hmm. Interesting mix right there. I think what sets this game apart, though, and makes it different from every other game, is that most of the main characters in this game aren't the other characters, although they are important. Most of the characters are the different layers of your own psyche. So, like... I don't even know how to, how to explain this, but it's it's just your own brain arguing with itself, telling you you're a piece of shit, and being like, no, you're all right, everybody else is messed up, and like, I don't know, at one point you're so drugged out that you think you're your tie is talking to you it is a it is an interesting system the what what you're what you mean when you say the the voices in your head are sort of other characters you have skills in this game there's i think about 20 skills there's 20 skills yeah it's a four by five grid psyche physique motorics and intellect uh, and then a host and then five across in each of those categories and those skills butt into your dialogue conversations constantly. Uh, you know, if you succeed on a role, your uh, encyclopedia skill within your intellect stream will tell you, hey, you've heard of that before, or something along those lines. That's funny, because my guy was super low on intellect and everything was about feelings. So it would be like, <laughs> my brain would be telling me that I needed to hurry up and go find some drugs so that I could finally start functioning again, or things like things like that. Yeah, I have written down here in my notes, my electrochemistry is a bad influence. Uh, electrochemistry <laughs> being a skill that sort of dictates uh, your interface with drugs, you know, how you take drugs, how you interact with them, and uh, also your sort of, I think it's sort of the avatar of your addiction too. One of the things I think was interesting was that it wasn't just that these skills, um, who would each have their own personality, would butt up in your in internal monologue. They'd also sometimes have conversations with each other, like um, your drama or your electrochemistry skill. I remember one time it heard a rumor that the punching bag in the gym was full of amphetamines, and the electrochemistry guy was like, oh, hey, hey, we should go check that out. And then your logic skill comes in and says, no, that's dumb. That doesn't happen. Like, they play off of each other, too. It's not just piping up a little bit, but coming on in and doing a full conversation sometimes. Yeah, and the parts of your brain that you allow to develop, too, they're what kind of play in your own detective's mind and help you solve the case one way or another. So if you could be a very intellect-based detective, and then those parts of your brain would be the ones having conversations about things about facts, Mine was more of a feelings kind of guy, so he would go through the feelings he got as he walked through a crime scene. And sometimes, of course, these voices in your head are entirely wrong. 
you're a you're a drugged out moron. Like you don't even know how to function as a person, much less complete your job correctly. So it's kind of fun trying to figure out what's being real and what's not. Yeah, my uh, one of my highest stats throughout the course of the game was Inner Empire, which as far as I can tell is just your imagining things, your sort of inner imagination. And by the end of the game, it was telling me that I could teleport from the ground up to the top of a building. And I actually succeeded a role that did that, but it was just my character closing his eyes and climbing really fast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, having you just a gotta skill- believe. Exactly. It, it's interesting, though, because having a skill get too high is also a bit of a liability. So that, to me, is one of the most interesting things in a very interesting game. Take your standard uh, CRPG or even just regular RPG like Dungeons & Dragons. I know we all have played some of that before. Um, is there any reason you wouldn't want to get your strength or your intellect as high as you could get it? No. It's just um, a constant buff to your character just telling you oh you're godly at doing these things and this game with the skill system sometimes if your say your inland empire skill was too high or your logic or your electrochemistry skill was too high it would force your character to do things even if you the player didn't want them to and to me that was a very interesting take on the rpg standard mid-maxing kind of thing yeah, it's almost taking over your entire mind and, and forcing out all those other voices. And it's the interplay between all the voices that make you a well-rounded person, which, of course, this guy is not not, <laughs> even, not even close, but he's trying his best to maybe get halfway back there. While we're on the subject of uh, tabletop RPGs, I wanted to throw out real quick that Robert Kurvitz, the main writer, uh, dropped out of school at 14 and has done basically nothing but hardcore RPG, tabletop RPG stuff for uh, the last, you know, 20-ish years of his life. So tabletop RPGs are a tremendous influence on him, his writing, and this game. So it's no coincidence that you're seeing sort of a tabletop RPG mechanics taken and subverted uh, to the success of the systems in this game. Yeah, and I don't think it was subverted that much. They were doing dice rolls that were plainly seen to the character every time you tried to do something. Yeah. Before we get off the skill system real quick, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that your clothes will also affect your stats. So I'd find myself like, if I wanted to make a real good jump, I'd uh, remove my pants, which uh, hindered my ability to do uh, (laughs) dexterity rolls or something along those lines. So picture this uh, balding, middle-aged, overweight-ish cop taking off his pants. Yeah, taking off his pants on the rooftop and getting ready to long jump across a chasm. And you kind of got the spirit of this game. That follows the character quite well, so that's not even a a weird thing to see in this game. I did also like when I um, managed to convince a uh, punk gang member to give me his jacket that said, fuck the world on the back, and I wore that around for the next half hour before Kim sort of embarrassedly told me to take it off. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, Kim being your detective partner in this game, yes. Yeah, so in in this game you have almost like your, your partner, and he's an... He's he's a reluctant partner too. I believe he's from another precinct. He kind of joins you on on this uh, on this mission, and the whole time, you can tell that he doesn't want to be there, and he's there because he screwed something up, and and he has to be there babysitting you basically. And he's just embarrassed. The game will let you do whatever you want, and you embarrass yourself constantly throughout the, the course of the story. But he's like that. He's the one voice that will always be like, "Dude, what are you doing? Like, why are we here?" 
Yeah, in a vo- in a game that's full of internal voices vying for control of the situation, he's the one external voice that will sometimes sort of put the brakes on the situation. He's basically like the straight man to the nonstop absurdity that's going on throughout the course of the rest of this guy's internal monologue. Which is funny because this game lets you make a, a million different choices on, on how you want to play each situation and everything. And I don't know how you guys did, but at the end of the game, I actually asked him to... Uh, to uh, come to work with me in my precinct and he said yes so i think i finally won him over after all the bullshit he still decided that i was an okay guy and that he should come work with me which i thought was crazy because i thought there's no way this guy's ever going to want to see me again i remember in the game that kim is at first wary of your he calls it unorthodox methods and uh those are really hilarious dialogue early on in the game, where he talks about the Jamrock Shuffle. Your character is a detective from Jamrock, and he says when you guys from your precinct go to a crime scene, you, like, head straight to the containers. And it's kind of like a twisting of the CRPG thing, like, oh, here's a crate. Let's take everything out of the crate. Oh, look, here's a barrel. Here's a shelf. Oh, it's a cabinet. And you're, like, heading to all these things first to get all the items before you move on over there. Yep. He sort of intones that Harry's precinct is a little more, um, you know, fast and loose with the process, but they they get results and they're known to be getting results and they're known to work in a very tough precinct. Um, while we're on the, uh, we were we were talking a bunch about the checks that are constantly happening in this game, but another interesting thing about that is you do in fact get to affect the levels of these skills over the course of the game. You get experience for passing certain roles and completing certain tasks, and it turns into this really nice gameplay loop of you make roles, you fail or you win, you get experience for that, and then you complete quest as a result, then you get more XP, and then you can revisit your failed roles in other places, which then allows you to invest in stats, and etc etc it's sort of a very nice loop of you fail you go away you try again yeah i think even on the map you could see it in somewhere in the ui like here are all your all your fails and here's what you got to do to go back and try again basically which is kind of nice if you there were a lot of skill checks in the game that if you failed at them you could either level up your empathy or your authority or your logic skills and retry that check later or if you talk to the right character completed the right task somewhere else then that would unlock that check again so you could try it again it felt like there weren't a lot of paths that really got closed off to you during the game yeah and the one final way you can uh, sort of affect your skills are through the thought cabinet which basically through certain dialogues or certain paths or certain actions, you can unlock a thought that basically allows you to devote some time to unlock a perk, right? You internalize certain thoughts. One that comes to mind is the volumetric shit compressor. (laughs) You know, you are told uh, you need to get your shit together. So you, you ponder that idea for a while. I need to get my shit together. And you win the perk volumetric shit compressor, which sort of increases your endurance checks. I mean, you could also take things like drugs, which would have a, uh, a momentary boost for you, but in the long run, it, it would drag you down further. The drugs, yeah, they're different. You could smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, do various drugs along the way to help you with these skill checks. I thought the ca- thought cabinet was an interesting thing, too, though. It was, um, call it perks. I kind of saw it almost like an inventory, you know, like inventory that you can't unequip things afterwards. 
but you could kind of choose what obsessions your character had and what things he was really like floating around in the brain and you had have to spend a skill point to unlock extra slots for this thought cabinet um which you would think about a thought research a thought quote unquote and then eight hours later find out what the thought was really leading towards it might be good things like at, uh, bonuses to your stats it might be bad things like it uh, gives you negatives to the stats and you don't really know until you actually go through and try it out the thing i like most about this is it's completely brought on by the way that your character is acting in the world like if you act like a super big communist for a long time you get a perk that says you're a super big communist and you get experience for being a communist um if you act like a, a huge fascist, same thing. Or if you, you know, basically intone that you're some kind of super cop, you get uh, a minus one to logic because you're a self-deluded idiot, but you get high caps for a bunch of other stats. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Where's your really, confidence and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Hey, what you don't know can't hurt you until it does. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But speaking of things uh, hurting you... Um, the combat in this game is basically non-existent um, where a typical CRPG would, you know, throw you into tactical battles a la Baldur's Gate and have dice rolls indicating outcomes of, you know, a hit or something like that. This game does its action entirely in text. And the rare time that combat does happen in this game, it's done in like a few very decisive sentences rather than a a drawn out tactical battle. Yeah, you're almost deciding like what your actions are going to be. Not so much shoot here, aim here, do this. It's it's your situation playing out and seeing almost if you can talk yourself out of the situation or see if you can de-escalate. More or I less. think this was one of the more realistic things about the game was that uh, you know your typical call it a police detective video game like say L.A. Noir. I mean, what was your body count in L.A. Noir? It was a game by Rockstar, <laughs> so it was high. But in here, I had two combats the entire time i had a gunfight which is i think an unescapable part of the storyline and then also um there was that little ginger orphan who was throwing rocks at the corpse you were supposed to take down kuno 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 (laughs) Uh, i don't know what your guys first uh what your stats were at the beginning but i think a body was my worst skill or it was my second i think i was um five for intellect two for body one for psyche and a four for um, Mordorix. Um, but I tried to like beat this little teenager in a fight and I ended up tripping, falling on my ass and he laughed at me. That's exactly what happened to me too. So to be fair, everyone wants to hit this kid. <laughs> you child beating assholes. I successfully... You successfully beat the child. No, I successfully <laughs> manipulated Kuno onto my side. He may have called me the C-word a few times, but, you know, we got over it, and I helped get drugs from his dad. Win-win. <laughs> After I couldn't beat him, I stole drugs from his dad, but then I didn't give them to him. I sold them to somebody else. That's the kind of person you are in this game, and that's just one little minor side well, That's the kind of person you were in this game, Clint. That's a key oh, phrase. Yeah, well, see, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> well that's the the awesome thing about this game is it it gives you a freedom to sort of mold this guy's personality and character from almost a blank slate like there's only a couple things you're going in with you're white you're a dude you're a cop
there's a thing with most RPGs where people, they will play the same game where you can make a million choices again and again, and they seem to make the same choices every time. And it's because you, at the beginning, are set up as a hero. And so you want to do heroic things. So everybody, regardless of their personality, tends towards heroic actions, right? Because that's what you feel like you should be. This game starts off, you are literally a piece of shit. You're probably one of the worst people that you've ever heard of. <laughs> You're a degenerate, yeah. Yeah, so you feel completely free to just act however, because the bar is so low, you could literally, again, try to hit a kid and then steal drugs from his dad, and that just seems totally normal for the character that you're playing. I think there was an early tagline for this game back when it was called, what, uh, No Truce with the Furies? Um, the tagline was like, uh, have fun being a total failure, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, obviously associating your game with failure is not necessarily a power move, so they, they changed the direction on that, but... Um, <laughs> Your, your detective is not a sympathetic character, right? He's a drunk who basically, it's his job to get dunked on by all these people because he has no idea what's going on in the world around him. Um, you're rehabilitating a really shitty man in a position of relative power because he's a cop. So it puts you just in this really bizarre situation. Yeah, there's the whole point thing, like, does he even deserve to be rehabilitated? Does he even deserve to get better? And the answer is probably no. And I'm assuming that most <laughs> people's playthroughs don't redeem him in any way, shape, or form. You don't have to be redeemed in this game. At the end, I almost felt like I wanted to see if he could be, so I kind of started playing that way. We should definitely save this for when we talk about our endings, because, or how we feel about the ending, because it sounds like we came away with very different feelings about how our character developed over the course of the game, like who our Harry was at the end of this experience. I will say I've done a little bit of a second playthrough. I think I went through two days and went kind of the opposite way I was doing before. So instead of being the guy who's really good with, you know, um, hand-eye coordination and thinking stuff, I was the guy who was really good with punching things and feeling out the situation. I think that was the same character Brian was doing. If I'm You were punchy-feely? Punchy-feely, yeah. Um, but I will say that going through those first few days... Both, I was surprised in the terms of the different solutions I had to find to puzzles because what I used to unlock using one skill wasn't available and I had to figure out how to use my new skills to do it and also the new information that was given to you. Um, like I remember there's one skill called shivers which is supposed to be kind of like how you feel, uh, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up and in this game it's like the city is trying to talk to you in different ways. It's kind of like your gut feeling about walking into a dark alleyway or whatever and it gave me like a whole tour of the martinez district um would be that i didn't get the first time around and this time because i had more shivers i was able to figure that out i was able to hear that yeah that was mo like my focus and then i did play like maybe like a half hour on the way back in and i was more of a information-based cop and you're almost like sherlock holmes when you're, when you're playing as the information-based cop so i would see things that i never saw before too like Instead of him having a feeling about something, he would see something and then he'd almost like replay it in his mind like, well, this must have happened here. Then the resulting action was this. And it was totally different. So you're solving the same things with totally different information. Yeah. Playing with a person with a high psyche, which is sort of the empathy skill, um, got me a lot of insights like... Uh, he feels really uncomfortable that you're going down this line of questioning, or he's really glad that you backed off of doing this certain thing, or maybe you should needle this a little bit more and you'll get the information you want out of him. It's just incredibly more 
it, it is far better developed than something like Josh, you mentioned the system in LA Noir, where your questioning system in that game sort of relied on people's really poorly animated <laughs> facial expressions. <Yeah>. Doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're on the subject of the writing and the dialogue, and since that's basically how this game uh, communicates the entirety of its you know, situation and scenario, it's worth noting there is just a ton of writing in this game. Like, there is every interaction usually only has the first maybe sentence or so voice acted, and then it goes into a very long sort of CRPG, black background, red text, choose your own continuation of this conversation thing i thought it played out really well because again you would personally say something and then all the different modes of your brain would start kicking in what they thought too often fighting with each other in, in direct conflict with you in direct conflict with with the people around you and then i don't know it was, it was interesting the people talking were only like a quarter of the conversation so to me it was very interesting that this much writing was in a game that I liked so much because normally a large volume of writing in a game can push me away from it a little bit, or at the very least take me out of it because good writing doesn't need to mean you're reading this much. Good writing is to me generally snappy writing, but this game subverted that expectation of mine. You know, video games to me thrive when they let you inhabit a place and Luckily for Disco Elysium, that's exactly what the writing did in this game, is it let you inhabit the place more fully. Um, you know, it's a lot different than something like, and I railed on this in our Dark Souls podcast, reading a codex. There was nothing of the sort in this game. No, not at all. All of it was direct front and center, and it was the main portion of the gameplay, which again, I don't normally care for, but this time I just couldn't put it down. One of the things I really liked about the writing, um, also the sense of humor, is how... This game kind of took very absurd situations, like uh, one of the first things you can do in the game is you go down from your broken-ass hotel room, it's, you know, like, everything's messed up, you threw a shoe out the window, all that, you go down to the bar at the downstairs, and you notice somebody spilled rum on the bar last night, so your electrochemistry, being the good influence that it is, tells you you should lick it and get that flavor of rum back into you. It's hilarious it's um but it takes that initially absurd situation and later on uses it to get you in the uh get you in the touchy feelies later on uh, i thought the same thing with um some of the with the alignment system in this game you're not like a good cop bad cop sort of thing you're like you're a boring cop or you're a communist cop or you're a fascist cop or you're a sorry cop you're sorry about everything you did it wasn't like a standard you're good or bad sort of thing. And the initial dialogue options you had with all these things were kind of hilarious, like preaching um, preaching communism to the rep of this mega corporation or other <laughs> things like that. But again, it takes those initially absurd sort of things and weaves them into an actually dramatic and emotional story later on. Yeah, there's a ton of political uh, messaging and allegory and stand-ins in this game uh, from everything from communism to capitalism, neoliberalism, ethno-nationalism. Uh, all of them sort of have stand-in characters uh, throughout the course of the game, um, and they take a little time to tell a story about what their particular political ideology has done to this this game world. And, you know, for what it's worth, this game has a 
a 12,000 year written history behind it, uh, completely behind the scenes in like a novel that Robert Kurvitz, the writer had written in the past and uh, across all of his uh, tabletop campaigns. Yeah, this seemed way too deep to just be a, a standalone video game. And I think we find out recently that, that he has a whole world that he's been developing for years around this. And I think he's going to be writing some novels around it. Is that correct? Even even more? Yeah, he has a novel written in it already, and it's going to be uh, translated and brought over to English soon, I believe in 2020 or 2021. I'd be surprised if it took longer than a year with all the popularity this game has um the popular press this game has received uh you know they're gonna want to strike when the iron's hot and certainly has enough money for that now i assume yeah i don't think they even guessed that it would do this well but again it kind of came way out of left field and then all of a sudden i think if you check any major gaming publication it's on everybody's top list i think pc gamer named it their top game of the year that's huge yeah, I mean, a bunch of of really notable sites did that, and a bunch of really notable critics have this game, if not top, very close to it. And, you know, it shows there's a lot of hard work that went in this game, and certainly a complete visionary of a, a world builder um, in the world of Disco Elysium. The world being called Elysium, as I understand it, is super compelling. You know, it's... If I, I wrote down a, a little note section here of alternate history facts and... There's just a whole bunch of interesting alternate history items that about this world. Like it's, uh, there was a revolution of a communist uh, country that was overthrown by a neoliberal slash capitalist coalition, and they sort of staged a revolution from within this society to us, like a sort of a false flag operation. And that's what Revishal that you're playing in is, which is the setting of this game. Did any of you guys get into the pale? Like, hear anything about the pale as a a concept within the game? I think that was one of the more interesting world-building things they did. Like, this guy's been writing the—he's been doing world-building through t- pen and paper RPGs or whatever, writing for his novel. He's been doing that for more than a decade, is what I've heard. Um, and the pale, I think, is one of the coolest things that comes out of this. Uh, there are. A number of different continents, I think seven different continents, different land masses. Although calling them land masses is not strictly accurate, instead of an ocean between them, there is this nothingness called the Pale. And the Pale is where kind of the physical world suspends itself. As you go deeper into it, uh, it says that things like, um, uh, things like math stops working numbers stop working because it loses all references um but this pale separates these large land masses and there is an age of discovery kind of analogous to our own um that these different continents discovered each other yeah it's really a neat idea like it's something like an allegory for our oceans but like so much more mysterious and interesting and the interesting thing about the pale is that you start to hear that it is expanding so basically, this sort of nothingness, this sort of all-consuming, illogical space is encroaching on what is the world that all of the characters in this game inhabit. So 
it's sort of like a weird climate change allegory, like a slow apocalypse is happening in this game that no one can really detect in the moment, but it's constantly getting worse and worse. And I think that's what's happening in the church, if you guys did the thing in the church. Oh, I finished that quest. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's this church you find on day three of the game, um, and inside this church there is a two millimeter hole in reality where sound ceases to exist. And you find out later that the church was built to kind of contain this hole, although the hole is slowly growing, according to the game. Yeah, it's super evocative and interesting stuff. Like, they did an excellent job bringing all of these ideas from this world of Elysium to life, and I, I just want to know more. Like, I can't wait till that book comes out, because I'm going to read it for sure. Speaking of the world and how it's put together, uh, it's also presented in a super interesting visual way. Um, I would best describe the way this game looks and the maps that you're um, navigating as sort of oil paintings. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the influences one of the artists stated was that was the look they were going to, and it's certainly unusual for a video game to look like an oil painting or use some of the same visual um, visual tricks or visual look as an oil painting. Feels like that that in watercolors to me, kind of. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's some watercolor areas as or watercolor looks as well. And another crazy thing about that is with that aesthetic, this painterly feel, there's also dynamic lighting. So like they're mixing these sort of pre-rendered oil painting stuff with the dynamic lighting, which is best seen with your character's flashlight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really striking. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything that looks quite like that either. The whole world that you're navigating throughout the course of this game is really just about two blocks, right? Mm -hmm. It's a pretty small area at the end of the game, and we're talking about this game like it's massive and huge, and there's so much to see and do, because there is. But it's basically just two extremely detailed blocks of a city. What I really liked about it was that at first I thought, oh, is this all? Is this all I get to see? Because most... RPGs you go through, you get to a new city, you do the quest there, and then you move on to the new city. So, you know, the writers can throw, or the designers can throw a variety of environments at you. You can go to the ice levels, you can go to the volcano levels, and see these different kind of artworks. But this one felt like things were very packed in very well. It was almost a set for a play rather than a vast world to explore. Not that there wasn't a world to explore over here, but you would come back to a location and things would be different. Yeah, and the other thing I think is it actually felt like a real world. So in most RPGs and things like that, there's you know 100 buildings and you could probably go into one or two rooms of those 100 buildings. Here, if you saw it, there's a chance you could probably get into it. And then you would go into a building and find out, you know, well, this is like a multi-story building. There's so much to find. You'd go do the one thing and then you'd have some weird quest where now you're going through the basement. Like you revisit these things hundreds of times and see different things every time. Worth noting, too, is even though this is a uh, it's not, you know, an 80 hour game, too. It's not an eight hour game. Uh, my play through for this, I think the first one took 24 or 25 hours. I'd be surprised if people did it much quicker than that. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think spent 27. Yeah, mine was 27, I think, as well. And again, I, I did that over the course of three days, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I like this game. <laughs> Sometimes oh, he <man>. slept. <laughs> Not often. 
I mean, it, yeah, it goes to show you how a game like this can really grab you, like a good book or a, you know something along those lines. It, it really does sort of get its claws into you, and you just have to see the story through to its end. I also like how much detail they did pack into that overworld too. They had that oil painting aesthetic, but I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there's also these orbs that pop up and they only pop up if you have a high enough skill to detect them. So the orb with the corresponding color of the skill, like purple for Psyche, would pop up if you noticed something happening, like this couple over here is having a tense interaction or uh, the wind is blowing in cold off the, the docks if your shivers is high enough or something like that. And that writing is good and it it's sort of adds a bit of text to what would otherwise just be walking along on the overworld. Those orbs could catch you off guard a bit too. Like um, you might be walking alongside the boardwalk or uh, just making up an example here. And you're like, oh, there's a perception orb over here. I'm going to click that and see what I see. And all of a sudden your character's down on their knees because they remember their ex-wife or something like that. Like the things come out of nowhere, which realistically that's where they come out of you you smell the apricot scented chewing gum and it takes you back to earlier days you know yeah or you walk by a particular wall and you notice the bullet holes there and you experience sort of a hallucination of a firing squad putting down the revolutionaries that stood up to the coalition in that same spot 20 years earlier it's a deeply dense game like there's just a whole lot there that isn't immediately there at first glance. Uh, and what's there at first glance isn't too bad either. <laughs> no, it just keeps building on itself and getting better and better, which, which I love. One cool thing I heard about the art um, was that they had originally hired an artist or um, contracted an artist to come up with icons for all the different skills, but that didn't work out with that artist. But one of the people inside the studio was not too bad at doing portraiture, like doing faces and things. So they had the per that person come up with faces for all of the different skills they had. And I th they might have just been using it as kind of clip art, uh, placeholder art. But then they kind of liked the idea of, wait, what if these skills were people? Uh, what if we kind of built on that idea a little bit more and... That's how they kind of came to the skill system being the glory that it is today. That's a really awesome story about sort of how the art drives the mechanics uh, of the game. That's pretty fascinating, actually. Uh, I've only ever heard something similar when we talked about Undertale, where Toby Fox wrote all the music first and then let the scenes be dictated by that. It goes to show how all of the various pieces and parts of what makes a really good video game doesn't just have to be a you know, a one-shot amazing mechanic. It can grow out of something else, some other aspect of the piece of the work. Brian here. We'll be starting endgame spoiler discussions now, so if you're sensitive to that, please skip ahead to around 53.40. Thanks. Shall we talk about the ending? Absolutely. Uh, this game's ending is not subtle in that it knows 
that it's going to be wrapping up soon. You get on a boat, you head to a deserted island in the northern part of the map. Uh, a very somber melody plays as you head over there. And by all uh, accounts, this looks to be sort of a, a final confrontation style um, chapter of the game. Mm-hmm. It definitely sets itself up for that, but in true Disco Elysium fashion, there's no final boss fight. Instead, you talk with a guy, and in true Disco Elysium fashion, he's not a final boss. He's this sad old man who is ready to give himself in. Yeah, he's. Uh, I believe he was a revolutionary soldier who, in sort of a, a Japanese soldiers still on Pacific Island style, has been camped out on this island since the time of the revolution. About 50 years ago is when the revolution happened. Yeah, so he's been keeping himself alive that entire time and sort of witnessing the world. He has come back across, so he's sort of a a self-exiled hermit, not necessarily a person who's stuck on an island. But he just, due to the trauma of his experience in the, the revolution, as I understand it, he just couldn't bear to be around the society that took hold in Revishal after the uh, the revolution. Yeah, the um, communist revolution, which he was a part of, and then... Uh, you know, the revolution was quashed, but he actually was not among those murdered later on because he actually ran away. He had a moment of doubt and fled across the island, fled away from the fortification before it was stormed. And he's been kind of living in these hidden islands outside of society since then. And you find out that he's the one that perpetrated the murder that you have been investigating throughout the course of the entire game. Um, sort of what initially seemed to be a completely far-fetched uh, far-fetched option for how this crime could have taken place turns out to actually be what was done. It was a sniper, not in point B or point B prime, but in point B prime prime, which was way out a kilometer away on an island. So the game's sort of absurdist, true crime, super detective solving the mystery feel chimes through at the end despite kim's insistence that this was going to be a by the books murder um, (laughs) in a confrontation between the uh union and the strike breakers now at the very beginning of the game when you first take the corpse down from the tree uh the corpse the murdered corpse being hanged, or at least that's what things seem like at the beginning, you can use your Inland Empire skill, the one that lets you talk to your necktie. It also lets you talk with the victim's corpse, and you ask him what killed him, and he says communism. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm just crazy. But as it turns out, corpse knew what that's he was true. talking about. He, the, Yeah, the, the dead man did know what he was talking about, or your Inland Empire did, or who knows. But... It, it was a that's a really interesting thing i didn't recognize that turn of phrase in my playthrough well done josh well with the ending too when you're talking to the communist before we get to the other parts of the ending um maybe i'm going out on too far a limb here but i kind of saw parallels between the old guard communist and harry himself like both took themselves outside of society kind of for failures failures that they saw before and have been kind of just hanging out in the fringes outside since that event happened, whether it's a failed political revolution or um, when Harry broke up with his ex-wife or his ex-wife left him or I'm not really sure what happened over there. They, Harry doesn't 
My Harry, at least, he didn't delve too deeply into that mystery because I had one point of morale, and if I lost that one point, then it was game over. We, we went way too deep on what happened to him and his ex-wife, and it totally broke him. <laughs> oh no. Do you remember it at all? I remember it being absolutely devastating. I remember at one point he was just like on his hands and knees, just like begging her to come back. And he, I, I even like, uh, there was a part where there was like a, an abandoned payphone, and I, it was so absurd role to dial a random number, and he ends up calling his, what, what ends up being his wife, and she's just like, Harry, you can't call here anymore, like... Whoa. But 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 once he knew the number, like I could go back multiple times, and he would just keep calling. And every time that he called, it would get more angry and more. It, it was it was dark. Yeah, that is dark. I mean, this game has a lot of sort of hidden depths like that, and super deep moments. And Josh, I I do think you're right about sort of the the parallels between Harry's need to sort of isolate himself and other himself. Uh, in the same way that the the revolutionary did on the island because it was clear from the start of the game that you know something about this this police job just really wasn't working for him anymore like he he was a successful policeman he did a good job with it but at the same time he just couldn't bear it anymore that in conjunction with the other events in his life as clint mentioned caused him to go on this bender um there's actually a a quote on cops from the writer kervitz cops who i have a massive amount of empathy for have the third highest suicide rate in eastern europe of any profession it's tough stuff and i wanted to do it justice um i don't know how well he does being an actual cop justice but he does manage to communicate an incredible amount of empathy for what is obviously a very difficult profession yeah and the weird thing is a lot of these were tropes i mean not to take away from the writing but this you know distressed cop who has a bad home life and can't get his shit together i mean that's a writing trope straight out of the oldest book ever, but it was done so well in this game that I never called it on that. Like it, it was, it was done in a very original and, and very interesting way. Yeah. They had the femme fatale too. Yeah. It, it had everything. It, it had all the tropes, but it never felt tropey to me. No, you're right. The, the femme fatale character, Classier, I believe. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Thanks, Estonia. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, she was an interesting character too, because I think what was she a? Uh, she was an international like business espionage person, uh, working in within this dock at the time the murder was happened, and she was with uh, the deceased at the time of the murder. Uh, actually, they were boning down, so it was a real interesting situation to sort of have to walk into as a murder investigator. So after you're talking with a communist and getting him to confess to the crime, uh, out of the reeds comes. What is this, a phasmid or plasmid? Phasmid, right? Phasmid, yeah. It's this gigantic praying mantis like creature that's camouflages itself in the reeds. There's been this whole side quest before with these cryptozoologists about trying to track down this fantastic beast that no one believes exists. Um, and in the middle of getting the confession out of the guy, you see this creature swaying in the reeds, and then you go over, you start talking with him, and... There's some pretty deep stuff going on in that insect conversation. Thanks, Inland Empire. Yeah, this is the one part of the story that just didn't work for me. And I, I was, it kind of pissed me off a little bit because, again, this, this is a detective murder mystery. And everything up to this point, despite the crazy conversations you're having in your brain, you'll, you'll see a few crazy things, but you just assume that's your drugged out brain being ridiculous. Drugs being drugs. 
Yeah, this was the one thing where it, then it took it to a supernatural thing. I'm like, if this is a supernatural ending after all this very logical, very real detective work, it's really going to piss me off. And I don't know that it was real. It could have been fake. Hard to say. Oh, I, I think it's definitely real. Um, the The interesting thing about this, and I think it, it plays into what they're actually trying to go for with the whole tone of this game, which uh, the writers call fantastic realism, uh, which is sort of characterized by uh, a world that's constantly changing geopolitical credibility, but it outmaneuvers history. And what they mean by that is, you know, the main story here is history, but while it mimics what might happen in a real history, it's highlighted with fantastical elements like this stick bug that emits pheromones that will make you murderous or like the pale, which is uh, an abyss that's encroaching on reality. Little touches like that change it from realism to fantastic realism. I feel like that's very similar to a literary genre called magical realism. Um, that's the first thing I think of over there, which is kind of like... It's a very realistic world, except the magical things or the fantastic things kind of intrude on it in a little ways. Um, I will also say, though, I kind of feel like the world building was kind of the writer's near and dear sort of stuff over there. He wanted to put that world building first, maybe sometimes to the detriment. I didn't... I'm still thinking about the plasmid. Um, I just beat the game for the first time yesterday or the day before so i'm still kind of digesting the ending over here but i'm not sure if the plasmid appearance at that time was a um good move writing wise Once you are done with your encounter with the Phasmid, you apprehend the murderer and take a boat back to the mainland, uh, where you are greeted by the members of your precinct and a neuropsychologist who is ready to <laughs> sort of evaluate you to determine if you're going nuts or uh, if you are, you know, still competent enough to remain on the force, or basically it's to determine your fate. What has what personality did you build and what did that dictate should be the fate of Harry Dubois? Yeah, how did, how did you guys' characters uh, end up after all that? My character ended up solving the crime. I found my badge. I found my gun. So those things couldn't be used against me. And I found, uh, we got photographic evidence of this fantastic phasmid creature, which was apparently a PR coup, so that I'd be allowed to remain on the force than this. Uh, I think the one... Neuro, neuroscientist guy said, you know, uh, police officers discover uh, mythical creature sounds better than murderous vigilantes on the front page, uh, which, you know, you, you gotta admit has a fair point. The one part I didn't like about that was they gave you a question. It was came up to be similar, like, why do you think that Harry lost his memory at the beginning? And you have your whole list of options you can choose from and i ended up choosing the option i thought was right that oh i um i was it was a defense mechanism because of the trauma in my uh earlier life um but i feel like maybe me as a pet player i decided that was what happened but i felt like harry 
if he was being in character with how I thought he should be, should not have that information. He should not, like, just be able to sum it up so neatly and put a pin in it. I did not like that part at all. So at the end of it for me, that didn't weigh so much as to my non-commission to an institution as did Kim vouching for me. Uh, The bond that I had built with Kim was sort of the saving grace at the end of my Harry's playthrough. Uh, He vouched for the fact that while I didn't do things necessarily by the book, I still apprehended uh, the criminal and with very little to go on in a very tense political situation. Um, While, you know, there was a shootout and everything, um, no officers were harmed and there were minimal human casualties. So at the end of the day, you know, while it wasn't necessarily the cleanest case, my Harry was able to stay on the force as well. And that's what counts. Yeah. I don't know that he should be working anymore. Mine managed to stay as well, but I don't think I cared about any of that. The only thing I really cared about was like you, Brian. I cared about what Kim thought of me because (laughs) he was the one that saw you at your absolute worst, and he wasn't really sticking up for you at the beginning. He was just like, get your shit together, man. What the fuck is wrong with you? But by the end, I feel like we truly connected. He understood who I was, where I was coming from, and we actually kind of came around to the point where he wanted to work with me. Hell yeah, I would die for Kim. That, that, that was the best part for me. I'm like, okay, he redeemed himself. I didn't care if they ever let me on the force again, because good God knows I should not. Let's see, you lost your gun, you lost your badge, your uh, car's at the bottom of a lake somewhere, because you drove it in there when you were drunk. <laughs> like, <laughs> Hey, what are you talking about? It, it was a freak traffic accident that caused my car to <laughs> go into that lake. But that's what I told Kim, and he just like shook his head knowingly, like, yeah, okay. That's <laughs> whatever whatever you say man he knows you too well at that point yes yeah i i agreed that with you a little bit josh that this sort of at the end of the day it summed up itself up a little too neatly um you know with sort of all of your various actions being tallied up and talked about uh, in a sort of roundtable discussion it sort of it, it sort of felt like a musical a little bit, like sort of how, and now we bring the whole cast on stage to talk about how Harry's a fuck up. And, <laughs> and you know, at the end of the day, I guess it, it was theatrical, but it got the point across and it summed up the whole experience nicely. Shall we move on to some three word reviews? Let's do it. All right, Uh, my three-word review is Radical Midlife Crisis. This game sends you whirling around one city block in a bunch of weird clothing that you cobble together, hoping to solve a crime that you are almost certainly not equipped to solve. Uh, Disco Elysium tells an open-ended story with a ton of pathos and sharp political allegory, in my opinion, and it shares a lot of what makes prestige TV popular. It's Midlife Crisis the game, a la Sopranos, Breaking Bad, or Mad Men. Um, although they don't have an encroaching abyss in any of those properties. The history of the world is what makes this game special, uh, and the history of the fantastical world that isn't quite like ours. Uh, The end of the world is still a ways off, but it's looming large in this sort of neo-liberal hellscape that they've designed. Uh, It's a despairing world where the dam is overflowing and you've got your finger on one small crack, but you best keep plugging away. Alright, my three-word review for this game is Failure is Story. This game would not have been as interesting if Harry was the superstar cop that he claimed to be at so many points in the game. Uh, You go around, you run around, you fail at doing things. Uh, 
At the beginning of the game, I couldn't even stand to have the lights turned on in my room. I was so hungover. But going on in the game, you get your pants on, you go through it, you fail at doing things here or there. But this game makes that failure narratively interesting. It allows you to use what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're so good at that you're forced to make bad choices. It allows you to use that to define who your character is. And that was a radical departure from a lot of other RPGs I've played before. Something I really enjoyed going through. My three-word review was in your head. Uh, we've all played games like this before where, you know, this is your standard murder cop mystery. And like we talked about, this has got every trope in the book. But what makes this very interesting is this whole side where most of the conversation is an inner monologue in your own head. You're arguing with yourself more than you're arguing with the other people around you. It just brings to light all these like real deep and social issues and it makes it all so much more personal because it's you're not only seeing the decision but what's forcing the decision and, and what's making people act the way that they act. And uh, not only that, but it got in my head. Uh, I played this, like I said, I played this game 27 hours through in no less than, than a, a three day weekend. So it really stuck with me, had a big, big impact and I, I, I love this game. Well, I think obviously that's a, a rousing thumbs up from each of us, and uh, we can only hope that we find more games like this in the future where people are really going out on a limb, trying new things, uh, really showing us the extent to which tried and true genres can be twisted into something new and wholly unique. Speaking of not that, next month we're going to be talking about Pokemon Sword and Shield. This generation's outing of Pokemon is the first to appear on a home console. It's got just a lot of carryovers from the past. Yeah. So we'll have to take a look at what's new in the latest generation of Pokemon and revisit a series that most of us have not played in several generations. Wonder what's changed. We'll see. Well, for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on gaming. What was everyone's favorite moment from the game? Why don't you start, and I'll uh, I'll find mine. I think the first part where you're going down from your room, you're hungover as hell, and you're asking everyone what's going on, and they're just looking at you like, well, shouldn't you be knowing that? Like, um, <laughs> at the very beginning, you don't get a lot of help from the NPCs around you because you just fucked up so badly over the weekend. Uh, threw a bird against the wall. Uh, a stuffed bird and broke a lot of things waved your gun around threatened to kill yourself like all these antisocial behaviors um the one waitress sylvie i think her name is you actually made her quit because you've been the worst customer she's ever seen <laughs> and, and then you call her and she's like please stop bothering me for the love of god i quit my job to get away from you i think mine was the entire interaction with the um the trio trying to form a disco club in the old church the ravers yeah the ravers are awesome like they're all of those guys are just such pieces of work like the one guy who basically does nothing but speak in like skibbity skibbadanger i am the rearranger i was just gonna say that exact quote because i was stuck in my head for days i couldn't he's <laughs> such a goofball <laughs> uh, that those all those guys were great and the church scene in general was like where this game definitely got its weirdest and i think where it got weirdest for me was where it got most interesting 
Mine was far less weird. My uh, my favorite moment was when my character sang karaoke. Uh, <laughs> so, again, I'll, I'll, along with, with what Josh was saying here, like, you fucked this hotel up a million different ways. Like, you have to, you're begging on hands and knees just to get the guy to let you to stay there anymore. And every time I brought it up to him, he'd be like, no, you're not singing fucking karaoke. Get the fuck <laughs> out of here. But, but like, the, by the last day, I'd worn him down enough where he's like, fine. If you get a tape, you can sing some karaoke, thinking that I would never come up with it. And I managed to find a tape, and I got to sing karaoke, and it was one of the few voice-acted parts of the game. And, God, Harry is awful. But Kim watches him. Again, th this is like a moment between me and Kim. Like, Kim watches me sing horrible, horrible karaoke. Everybody hates it, but Kim was like, I can tell that really meant something to you. And I was like, that's... <laughs> He's like, I felt the tragedy of being a police officer. <laughs> yeah. Like the most diplomatic he could be. So I did yeah, the karaoke was... too. That was a great moment because it was the first quest you get. Like you get downstairs from your room and you're like, quest, sing karaoke. And for the next five days, it's the one thing you can't seem to close out. Yeah, I, I did it too, and uh, I succeeded on that role, so I got like this really deep voice guy. It was the same guy oh. that did the lizard brain. Yeah, oh. it's uh, if you succeed on the role, you get your lizard brain singing it, the deep voice. And if you fail, you get your Olympic mammalian voice singing karaoke. That's who oh I got. God. He was <laughs> bad. Yeah, yep. I got the deep voice guy, and that guy's got a crazy good voice. Well, not crazy good, but crazy interesting. It's very deep. I, I might just cut it in, because it's it's wild. Yes, please, um, please. I, I would love to hear the side-by-side, -side, just him singing karaoke <laughs> right here. <laughs> yeah, I'll see, if, I'll see if I can make that happen. You are all alone. None of this matters. No, none of this matters at all. But now you're all alone. None of this matters. Yeah, that was, that was my favorite part. It just showed how ultimately tragic he was, but how real of a person he was, and how him and Kim have grown together as, as a partner. So, I also like how this game is, you know, it's your murder mystery. You wake up and you've done jack shit about solving this murder mystery, and the first thing your character is like is like, I want to sing some karaoke. Yeah, there's a <laughs> dead guy hanging like out. Right thing. Yeah, he's been hanging out in that tree for like two days straight. You've been getting drunk, and you're like, yeah, I'd like to, you know, hang out at the bar days. some more. He's been seven there seven days. Has it been seven days? It was five days before they called you. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a special place. Revishal. City of Light. City of Wonder. City of dead bodies hanging in trees. Yeah. <laughs>